afternoon. Thank you for uh, joining us for uh, Sunday School today on baptism. I'd like to ask you to turn to Romans 6. Romans 6. We'd like to read Romans 6, 7, 8, 12, 1, 2, 3, and 5. But we don't have time for all of that. And so we're just going to start with 6, 1 to 4. And um, on baptism uh, today. And then um, we will pray and... Uh, Papa, could you get ready to tell us about what baptism really is? Sure. For starters, good deal. Let me read one to six, I mean one to four in chapter six, and, um, and we'll pray. What then shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Father, we are so grateful as uh, we um, study baptism to think that you have um, died in our place, that we have died with Christ and now we have unity uh, with him which is symbolized uh, by this incredible baptism um, that you have um, commanded us to, to be part of. And so, Lord, today we pray that we would have a greater understanding um, of this, that we would have a greater appreciation of the gospel, especially of what you have done, um, that our unity with you would um, become all the more astounding in our minds uh, like it truly is, certainly, Father, um, be you have positionally um, made us slaves to righteousness. And so I pray that we would live that way, that this would also affect the way we go about our daily life, the words that we say, the things that we do, um, the thoughts that we think. And so we commit this time to you now. Um, thank you for uh, Papa and Scott and Mark. Give them wisdom uh, as we study. And uh, thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Papa? You know, the amazing thing um, is that I've, I was raised in the church and been in the church my whole life. Uh, here and there, different churches, but um, I didn't understand the truth of what Romans 6, 1 through 4 meant until about 30 years ago or so. And um, it, it, it was like somebody flipped a switch on, and I said, I understand. And, and I had been baptized not as a baby, but as a young person, because that was the age that we joined the, the church at the time. Uh, but I never, even going through confirmation and uh, wandering around in the wilderness for a while, I never totally understood the meaning and purpose of this, and um, I remember when when the, the truth of Romans six was explained to me, I said, "That's me." You know, I I, I get it because you know I uh, because of regeneration. That's that's what baptism means and stands for. But that was the first time that I really understood it, and it's really the identification with Christ, uh, the in Christ, the 
the union of Christ, the union with Christ and what he, death, death you go under, you, you're raised again to new life. The, the old man has died, the new man is raised again to new life. It's not that you don't, you're, you're, not, you're not sinless, but that that sin has been dealt with. It's been, you've died to sin and you've risen again to new life. And it was almost uh, like a, a, another born again experience. I mean, it was the, somebody flipped switch on and I understood. Yeah. Scott? Yeah, well, I would just say at the outset, I was thinking, like Mark and I obviously grew up in a Presbyterian home, so obviously there's going to be a disagreement with people we love. But I would just say at the outset, uh, we love dearly people who disagree with us on this. Uh, I, I would not change my upbringing for anything. I, loved, I was even thinking about this today that I remember Mark's baptism as, a, as an infant. How old were you? I was six years old. Oh, man. Yeah, we've been uh, baptized seven times, I think. That's a good <laughs> Probably. Probably. So I can say he was baptized. Right. I remember that one. Uh, I mean, my grandmother I was, was there. uncontrollably is what I've I think, heard. Yeah, yeah, I, don't, I just remember, I have a vague memory of it, but my grandmother was there, my uncle was there, and I remember Grammy was just nervous wreck because Mark was crying, and she was afraid she was going to pass out. And uh, So I have this vivid memory. I mean, my dad's pastoral mentor, Dr. Robert Marshburn, baptized Mark as an infant. I'm mean, just all that to say that uh, we love people who disagree with us on this, uh, but I remember reading one time that a guy said, uh, you know, when, when we get to heaven, uh, the, 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 the Baptists and the Presbyterians are all going to get together, and one person's going to be right, one side's going to be right, and he said, whoever's going to be right is going to apologize for being too proud about yeah. how they held their position, the other side's going to apologize as well, and then he, we're just going to go forth and enjoy eternity together. I just thought that was just a great word. As we come into this, we want to be humble. I mean, you can so easily start to look down your nose, and you can have spiritual pride can creep in on an issue like this, not to say that's not important. But I just wanted to, to back into how much we love and respect people who disagree with us on, on this point. Can yeah. I ask a question? You, you mentioned you were baptized as a baby, but you were six? I was a baby. I mean, I, I was six years old when he was baptized. Oh, as you were six years old yeah. when he yeah. was baptized. Okay, I got you. I got you. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Six-year-old baby there for a little bit. We were thinking of, <laughs> yeah. Mark, um, how, how do you say, how big a deal is this in your mind? I mean, because there are, just like you said, Scott, great brothers and sisters that we love and admire and are walking far more with Christ than we may be. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so on, on one side, I think we can all, I hope in this room, agree that um, what the, for instance, the Church of Christ, what they would do with baptism, making it an essential part of your conversion, that if you are not baptized by water in one of their churches, you cannot be forgiven, you cannot be saved. So that water baptism becomes an essential part of justification, that, that is a heresy. That, that's, mm -hmm. that's a serious distortion of the gospel. I think we're all on the same page on that. Uh, the Catholic Church's view of baptismal regeneration is, is, is an incredibly destructive and, and harmful doctrine that is not biblically true. True. So, the, on the extreme end, heresy can be involved with the doctrine of baptism. I think that maybe as Baptists, uh, our tendency, even though we're named Baptist, I think our tendency can be to actually minimize how important baptism is. I, I, I think that… Um, I think that it is significant. I think it is the, the first command, really, of a new Christian is to be baptized in the name of Jesus as a public profession of your faith. That's no small thing. And a, a lot of churches, a lot of revival meetings over the last 150 years, they have made the first way you go public with your faith is walk this aisle, right? Pray this prayer, come up to the front, kneel down with the pastor, and that's how you go public with your faith. Well, does the Bible ever say that walking an aisle is how you go public with your faith? No. Does it ever say a particular prayer that you say? No. The, the Bible is crystal clear. The way we go public with our faith is baptism. Baptism is, is our first public act as a Christian. It's the first time we are coming out of private and saying publicly, this is what has just recently happened to me as a believer. And we, we have cheapened baptism a lot in our era because we, we joked that like, we've been baptized between us like seven times, which is probably actually literally true. 
true. Uh, some you mean of you, maybe, all of us here? I think all of us you, combined. You probably add a few more to mine. <laughs> Fred gets baptized once every couple years just to make sure uh, it right. sticks. It took. <laughs> um, but so we, baptism can become a thing that becomes small because it happens so frequently. I, you, you can meet all kinds of people with, they're not even Christian remotely today, but they were baptized when they were, you know, young or something. I think perhaps moving into a, a Muslim context or something today would be a better way to think about how, how radical baptism is supposed to be to us. Because in the, in the Muslim world, and I'm speaking generally, not maybe of every individual Muslim family, but it is definitely, there, there are enough stories that if you grew up in a Muslim family, a devoutly Muslim fam- family, uh, if you become a Christian and you say you're interested in Jesus, that's, that's not good. But the moment when you cross the line where there's no looking back in your family is what? If you are baptized publicly in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, if you do that, you can be cut off from your family in extreme cases, and this is no joke, brothers in the family or even the father in the family may attempt to kill the person who has converted. That, that is real. There's lots of stories of that having happened. So for them, the, the place where there's the point of no return is publicly identifying with Jesus through baptism. It's a huge deal. Uh, it, it's a big thing. So uh, it's commanded in the Bible. A person who, I want to be careful with this, but a person who sees the command you know, be baptized in the name of Jesus, a person who sees that command and just says, ah, oh, that's kind of awkward, or, you know, you gotta, you're getting, being looked at by a bunch of people in, in front of everybody, and it's kind of weird, and I don't really feel comfortable doing that. It's just a little bit strange. I, I just, I don't think so. I think I'm, I, I may, maybe I'll think about it later. And then, and then indefinitely putting that off for your entire Christian life, uh, something's not quite right there either, you know, <laughs> to say it nicely. Uh, so, something's not right there. So, th- this, is a, this is a serious command of the Lord. Obviously, the thief on the cross was not baptized uh, in his few moments on the cross, and on you could go with things like that. But it, it is still a, 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 a very important command. Yep. Scott, I, I've heard this from Mark before. Can you tell us about what convinced you uh, that believer's baptism was, was I would really like to hear scriptural. This. Good question, Jerry. <laughs> yeah. You have 38 minutes. Hack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It's lots of little things, I think, and one big thing. Uh, I mean, it's one of those issues. I remember R.C. Sproul said that uh, he disagreed with Calvin and Luther with fear and trembling. That was sort of the idea. Like, I agree with my dad on like pretty much everything. Here comes an issue that I may disagree with him. I wanted to be very careful that uh, I understood the, the issue pretty well. I mean, I just grew up, I just accepted infant baptism. But then at some point it was like, I probably need to really examine this and, and see what, what the Bible says. And so I was just, I listened to a lot of debates on it. And listening to debates, I hear people talk about household baptisms, for example, and then thinking, these households, there, there were probably infants in these households. Well, that sounded like a strong argument, like for the, the Presbyterian view. And then, but then when you get into it and you start, which we can look at these in, in a second, you, you begin to look at the household baptism, you think, what, then the pendulum started swinging to the Baptist side. When you actually look at what the, the text says, like the Philippian jailer, for example, which we can get into that, how he speaks the word to the children. So, it's, so stuff like that was like little dominoes started to fall. Then there are other texts about they were doing baptism because there was lots of water there. Well, if it's infant baptism sprinkling, why would they say that in the text? Or like the Ethiopian eunuch, he's going along, and they wait, and they find some water. Well, they could have had water with them. and All these things were just slowly pushing me to the other side, but it was the new covenant was the thing. I remember it was a specific debate I was listening to where they brought up the, the new covenant where they will know me from the least to the greatest. And for me, that was the big, that was the big hammer blow that I was like, I believe in believer's baptism. It's got to be. The fact that they all know him. How can an infant know God? Like in that way, I just thought that there's no way that this, this can be so, and but this was a long process for me, but that was the big thing. Hebrews 8, uh, put, put, it, put the nail in the coffin for it. Yeah, where would be a great place to start? 
I, I think it wouldn't be bad. So, so my, my get, our guess is that in this room, uh, most of us are probably pretty comfortable with the idea of believer's baptism. But if there was a controversial aspect of baptism for people in, in our circles to be worried, curious about in their own heart of hearts, uh, it's probably not, I hope not, baptismal regeneration or something like that. It's probably going to be Maybe a few people would think, you know, what, what if the Presbyterian view is correct? What if infant baptism is true? What are the arguments about that? Um, uh, uh, you know, so I thought that a good place to start might be with the household baptisms. If you would turn with me to, um, I've got it written down here somewhere, Acts chapter 10. Yeah, and you oh, that's Cornelius. About, and you preached about a lot of these already. That's yes. good. Uh, yes. And... Um, let me just read a quote from, I believe R.C. Sproul actually wrote this note in his Bible because uh, the articles in his Bible, I think he wrote all of them. One of the articles in the Reformation Study Bible, which is a great study Bible, I, I love that study Bible, but he, here's one of the notes about infant baptism. Uh, Sproul, I think, at least he edited these notes, I think he wrote this note. Sproul says, quote, uh, about one-fourth of the baptisms mentioned in the New Testament indicate that entire households were baptized. That's, and that's a lot. A fourth of the baptisms mentioned are households in the New Testament. This strongly suggests, though it does not prove, that infants were included among those baptized. Now, you could, you could extrapolate on that point, but that, that by itself, if, if that's all you know, that kind of makes you stop for a second. Household baptisms, that, that seems a little strange. How often have we ever seen an entire household get baptized at one time? I mean, it's not impossible. It just, that does seem like you have all these children involved, and how could, how could there be no infants in that household, and on and on. So, Acts chapter uh, 10, we, we spent a lot of time on this guy, Cornelius, but uh, just reading a couple verses here, look at the first couple verses. Scott, can you read the first uh, two verses? Of, he, of Acts 10? Yes. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So you, you hear his household is mentioned, and you already get a clue that maybe they're all not infants because it says the whole household did what? Feared God. I mean, a six-month-old, we love our six-month-olds, but they, they cannot yet fear God. That is not yet something they are capable of doing. So already you're, you're getting a clue that household includes people old enough to fear God. But keep, look at verse 24. And Scott, can you read that one? Yeah. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So perhaps household is being described here as relatives, and then he also brings in his close friends. And skip down to verses 44 to 48. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Now, if you look at that there, uh, this group of people gathered, which is his, it seems to be his household, his, his relatives, his close friends, they all hear the word. They respond to the word uh, by trust. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They speak in tongues. They extol the Lord, and they are all baptized. This sounds like the people being baptized are those who responded positively to the gospel message. But if it's not clear, look at chapter 11 when the story is told a second time. Uh, I'll read these verses, verse 14. Uh, he's told that Peter will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Uh, to me, that we could just stop right there. But then he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. 
And I remembered the words of the Lord, how He said, John baptized with water, but, I, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed, so believing, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Verse 14, let me read it one more time. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So here, the household that's being baptized is also a household that's being saved, which means they are the ones that are repenting and believing and receiving new life. So clearly, this household baptism is of believers. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, let's go to… Are any comments on that section? Chapter 16. I actually think this is the only one that we are not told any details about. Lydia, that Lydia. seller of purple uh, fa fabrics. Uh, Fred, can you read uh, 16 verses 14 and 15? Yes, sir. Uh, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the a city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house today and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Okay, this is the only household baptism that I'm aware of in the New Testament that you don't get the details of who was baptized. So this is all you get is an argument from silence from this one text. But let, let's go on and see if we get clarity on a later baptism in the same chapter. Look with me at the Philippian jailer in 16, verse 30. And 30 to 34, Scott, can you read 30 to 34? Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Well, here again... Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you and all your household. Well, they're not saved by being born into a Christian family. Nobody is going to teach that. So how are they saved? Well, they clearly believed in Jesus with their father because it says in the last sentence that he, the father rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Three-month-olds are wonderful, but they're not going to rejoice with you that you've become a Christian. Uh, we're not talking about an unbelieving child rejoicing with his father that he's become a Christian. These are children who are old enough to understand the gospel. They repented and believed along with the leading of their father, and they rejoiced with their father at the coming to faith of those in the family. So again here, the baptism of the family is, is a believing family. And turn to chapter 18. We've got two more to go. 18, ver we'll just do one verse. Verse 8, and listen to this. This is the synagogue ruler in Crispus. Corinth, Crispus. Frank, can you read eight? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, it doesn't say they all got baptized, but the inference is clear that they were all baptized. But why were they baptized? They believed in the, believed Lord the Lord with the whole household. So the, the, these household baptisms, like Scott said, when you actually start looking at them, they become much less persuasive than they sound just kind of said quickly. And the, the last one that I'm, I know of is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to the right, a few books. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 16. Uh, Scott, can you read that? I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So we hear about the baptism of Stephanus' household. There's no details, but if you look at the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, you actually do get details about Stephanus' household. Oh, 16. 
Uh, look at uh, chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians and look at verse 15. Paul says, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus uh, were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Now, do you hear that? Is it just the dad that was converted? No. Oh, the whole he, his whole household, they were the first fruits of coming to Christ, and they all devoted themselves to the work of loving the saints. So again, yes, his whole household was baptized, but guess what? They were also all believers. They were the first fruits, the first converts of the region of Achaia. And so that's it. I don't know of any others. Those are the household baptists. So all you're left with is one silent example of Lydia's household. We're not told the details. Now, here's what I would say. Don't, <laughs> when, all the, when the other four are crystal clear, what should you not do with the one silent one? Take the view that's not there, right? You, you, you should take the other four that are crystal clear. In all four other cases, everyone in the household is a believer when they are baptized, and you should read the clear text into the unclear text, the less clear text. And clearly, then there's no way Lydia was baptizing unbelieving children in her home. It just doesn't make any sense. So the, the household baptisms, I think, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited to those who disagree. I just don't think they carry any weight at all. It's just in my mind that they're not persuasive uh, really at all. So that, that's a big piece of the, of the puzzle. Yeah. I mean, I, feel, I would say they carry the weight the other way. Like, yes. It, this, the pendulum may start, like I said before, but when you, we just did, the pendulum begins to really swing the other way when you really dig into it and think they all were believers. It certainly appears that way when, when you examine it. So I would say the, the pendulum comes to our side, I, I think. Can, can we go to another text real quick? Absolutely. Let's go to the right to Galatians chapter as we are turning here, I just want to tell a quick story about me getting baptized. And so, um, in fact, my wife Kelly got baptized around a similar time to when I did. But uh, we're at Watkinsville First Baptist Church. Vic Doss, the college pastor there, was, was a big influence on me and a good friend of Fred and I especially. But uh, so, I was, you know, baptized so-called, as, as an infant, and then I was converted at age 16, and then I went for about another, I don't know, six, seven years, and I, and I, I didn't know what to do, and I, finally my mind changed, and I was like, uh-oh, I think I'm a Baptist now, and so I was like, I think I need to get, we need to be careful there. Strictly speaking, and I'm not trying to be offensive, I'm trying to be clear on this topic, strictly speaking, if believer's baptism is the right path and infant baptism is not correct biblically, if that's true, then I'm not trying to be mean, but infant baptism is not actually baptism. Because baptism, by definition, is a believer going public with his or her faith by identifying with Jesus in this act publicly, right? If that's what baptism is, by definition, a believer, going, a, a brand new Christian going public with his or her faith, that's what it is, then an unbeliever, by definition, cannot be baptized. So if you, were, if you were baptized when you were, even as a Southern Baptist, let's say you grew up Southern Baptist, you were converted, let's say you, you prayed the sinner's prayer at age seven or eight, and maybe it wasn't genuinely a conversion. This happened for a lot of us, not all of us, but for some of us. And let's say you were baptized when you were eight years old, and you were not truly a Christian, but you thought you were. So the church did the best they could, they baptized you. And then let's say that when you were 16 or 18, you truly came to know Christ. Like you, you know you were genuinely converted at age 16 or 18 or 20, then technically speaking, you have not been baptized. I'm not, again, not trying to be mean-spirited, but if you were baptized as an unbeliever, you were not baptized because baptism is a believer going public with his or her faith. And so uh, I knew I had to get re-baptized, which is really just getting baptized, truly. And so I, I finally agreed to do it, and I knew it was going to be at this huge church. Watkinsville First Baptist is a large church, you know, over, you know, 1,500 people, more than that. And I knew it was going to be this camera, you know, this big camera in, in two rooms, and there's going to be all these people looking at me. And I, I was like, man, this makes me uncomfortable. And I was like, there's a lot of stuff going on. So I remember the, the morning of, I get to Watkinsville, we go up into their old sanctuary, into the baptistry up, up, up in the back of the building, and I'm getting ready, and Vic comes in there and talks to me, and I'm reading over Romans 6 that we already read, verses 1 through whatever, 6 or so. 
And I got, I started getting emotional. And it was not in a way that I expected. I mean, it's kind of a big deal getting baptized. It, you, it's, it's not wrong to feel emotion about that. But I, what, here's the thing that I never had thought about, I don't think a single time until it was happening to me. I don't know if, you, if any of y'all have ever had this particular experience. It's just what happened to me. I was overwhelmed by this thought. It, it, it wasn't simply that I had to do this because Jesus commanded me to do it. Of course, that's true. It was the fact that Jesus was commanding me to do it. And what that meant was, I, me, like sinful me, messed up, evil, wicked, hell-deserving me who had been rescued, Jesus was commanding me to get in front of over a thousand people. And I, Jesus wanted to be publicly identified with me. That thought, I had, it never hit me emotionally until that moment. I was like, why would the Lord command me something to do something that would put His name in connection with my name? It just, it seemed almost blasphemous if it wasn't true. You know, it's like, why would he want to be, he wants to say, you are mine, you are my body, you are part of me. Like, when you go into the waters, it, 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 it looks like, you know, you're being buried with me, and you're being raised to new life with me. He wants his name connected to my name. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. And that's what moved me so deeply the morning of my baptism. And we, we actually got to do it, and I was a little stiff and awkward, but it was great. It happened. I went down, came up, still alive. It was not held down. I, was, I got back up. It got me up. And I, it, was, it was just such a wonderful thing. Uh, and um, I and, was there. Uh, you, you, Papa Fred I, was there. I was standing right by the tub. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, it was in the life building, I think. Or did you we, actually... We, we were in the sanctuary. It was before sanctuary. they did okay. the life building. Before they had to, Okay. But no, that, that was a really your powerful... Da- well, your dad was there too. I he was preaching that morning, so he was oh, not right able to be there. Okay. Galatians chapter uh, 3... Can, we, can I just add on to Uh-oh. that? One, one, one thing on that. I'm not on yours... But just thinking, uh, I was talking to somebody who, a couple that we love who are Presbyterian, and they were talking about watching baptisms, and she just said, uh, she's never cried in watching a baptism, like an infant baptism, but she had cried on this one particular, it was an unusual case, the, the kid was adopted and all this stuff, but I was just thinking, man, I've gotten emotional so many times, Elizabeth Prada says she cries every time she sees a baptism, because it's this picture, like infant baptism is not the same thing, it's the union with Christ, and David Mathis talks about how we, it's a tremendous joy for the person getting baptized, like Spurgeon talks right. about when he went, he had to walk a long way. He talked about the joy he was experiencing, like going to that, that river. I think it was cold to be baptized. He was just talking about the unbelievable joy. Well, that is true. But then for us watching a baptism, I mean, we should wash ourselves in the good news again of being joined to Jesus. It is so powerful. I mean, time and again, every time I'm up there even to do a baptism, I'm listening to the testimony, like right by, by the edge. I remember Carter's. And every time, like, tears are coming to my eyes before we're even going into the water. I mean, it's just such a powerful thing. And you shouldn't miss out on that, that means of joy in your life, especially watching. I mean, just watch with the eyes of faith and, and watch and celebrate that good Good news of, that you have been joined to Jesus. If, you've already, if you're already a believer watching, it's just a tremendous joy to take part, certainly for the person, but all through, along through your Christian life, it's, it should be a, a means of joy for you. It's amazing. I miss Dorothy. I mean, was there any dry eyes in the oh, entire yeah. place when Miss Dorothy went down and up? That's yeah. about the only video or anything from our church that's ever kind of gone mini viral was Miss Dorothy's amazing testimony, her, her baptism at, at age, how old was she, 88 when she was yeah, converted and 89 right. when she was baptized? Yeah. The, it got shared all over Facebook. Uh, just all, I think, Alan, you said you were at some game somewhere and some guy was talking about it you know, like somewhere else. Like it, was just, it made its rounds because it was such a powerful testimony to God's ability to save even someone uh, that far along in life. That's right. Were you going to say something, Jerry? Nope. Okay, Galatians 3, just a couple verses here. Uh, Look at verse uh, 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now just stop for a second. Look at verse 27. How does this support infant baptism? 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It sounds like the group being baptized should be the same group that are identified with union with Christ, which not all infants who are baptized, there, there's no, there, there clearly none of them are, are converted at the, time of their, at the time of their baptism. So I think that one is pretty strong. Uh, as many as, as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So this passage also is opening up baptism to everyone that believes. Yes. Male, female, Jew, Greek, barbarian, Scythian. I don't, it doesn't say Scythian here on this particular one, but others. You're, if you're Abraham's offspring, then you're, you're in. Yes, the, the availability of that is for anyone who will turn and right. trust in Christ. And see, the, the early church used you know, the difference, I guess, between you do want to talk about sacrament versus ordin ordinance. I mean, the early church uh, viewed, uh, and sometimes you still hear, hear them, uh, the baptism and the Lord's Supper called sacraments or ordinances. Ordinances come from, I guess, more of a baptism, a Baptist background than that Christ ordained these two uh, um, practices uh, versus the sacramental where there's, it's a, there's a conveyance of grace Right. some efficacy by getting baptism. We don't teach that. No. It's, it's just identity. It's a, it's a statement of your faith and testimony of belief in Christ. Yes. Yeah, that's a huge distinction, obviously, between Catholicism and, and Protestantism, is that in Catholicism, those, those ordinances or those sacraments, they actually confer the grace of God physically into your body, so that the waters of baptism actually wash away original sin. They actually regenerate the heart of an infant, which is just Wow, that's a bad teaching and unbiblical teaching. And then also that the, the Lord's Supper is literally the body and blood of Christ. And when you ingest it, you actually are eating in, drinking in the, the literal body and blood of Christ, which God's grace is conveyed through that means. They also use oils and other types of things to convey the physical grace of God, which is a, a harmful, a harmful and unbiblical teaching. Yeah. We have to get to, to Hebrews 8, but could we touch on the parallel, whether baptism truly is parallel to circumcision? Because that would be the other argument, or that would be another other argument. From yeah, the turn to Colossians chapter 2 for a second. And th this is a go-to text from, for infant Baptist perspectives. I, I don't find it persuasive. I, I'll tell you why in a second, but we'll, we'll explain a little bit how, how they would handle a verse like this. Colossians 2, look at verses 11 and 12. Colossians 2, 11. <clears throat> in Him, in Christ... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, from the, from the Presbyterian or infant Baptist perspective, here's, here's the crucial argument, because you're like, how could anyone believe this? There's no verse in the New Testament that tells you to baptize your infants. How could someone believe it? Like, where is the persuasiveness at all of this perspective? And I, other than the household baptisms, which we looked at, the biggest issue for them is how you understand how the Old Covenant and the New Covenant fit together. So, without trying to sound boring here, this, is, this shouldn't, uh, how these two things fit together. In the Old Covenant, it was the people of Israel, an ethnic people group. And how you got into God's covenant people in the Old Covenant was not by believing, although that's how you were saved, how you got into the people of God in the Old Testament was by birth, right? 
Isaac was born on the seventh day. On the eighth day, he was circumcised. He is now part of the covenant people of God. Now, if, 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 um, if, if an unbeliever is born into Israel and they are circumcised and they, they go to temple and they do all the stuff that you're supposed to do, if they later turn away from the God of Israel and rebel against him, they are still part of the people of Israel until they are exiled or they are put to death for capital punishment, whatever they may do. But they, they're part of the people of God. This explains why the problem in the old covenant was that Israel was constantly a harlot, right? A prostitute, uh, an adulteress. Why? Because most of the Israelites were not born again. That's going to give you a problem right there. When the Lord is trying to have a relationship with His people and 90 plus percent of them are non-believers, well then, okay, no wonder Israel was in so much trouble. The wilderness generation, how many people made it from the wilderness generation into the promised land? Two. Two, Caleb and Joshua, right? And uh, So, you're, you're looking at a remnant, right? A remnant theology. There's a tiny group within the larger group who are true believers, and that's why Israel was always in rebellion, because it's Elijah and 7,000 people and the rest have given themselves to Baal, right? That's, that's, that's the way it always is. There's far more Ahabs and Jezebels and there are Davids and, and people like that. So, let's turn, well, uh, hold your spot here and, and turn to the right, because we'll come right back to that. Turn to Hebrews 8, to the right, a few books. That's a great passage. And Hebrews 8 is addressing this very problem with the Old Covenant. And it's not a problem with the covenant so much as a problem with the people in the covenant which is exactly what God says. So, look this at… This is what convinced you mostly, This right? is what Scott and I both… This was yeah. the argument that just… It, to me, it was almost no looking back after this particular argument. So, look at chapter 8 and look at verse 6 of Hebrews. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, the covenant with Israel in the Old Testament. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, now pause. Do you see what I'm discussing? The problem was a problem with the people. And what was the problem? They didn't continue in the covenant. They were unfaithful to the covenant. So how is God going to fix the problem with the new covenant? How is the new covenant better, which is what it's called? Verse 10 tells you, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. This is the new covenant. What's different about it? I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. Why? For they shall… All know me. All know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Okay, this is it. I mean, this is, this is it. The, the old covenant included non-Christians, because you were born into the people of Israel, and you didn't have to be a believer to be an ethnic Israelite, and so that's why they were in such rebellion. How would you fix that problem? The answer is, you have only believers in the new covenant. That's how you fix the problem. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. They will never have to tell their neighbor, know the Lord, because they will all know me, savingly know God. Well, how is that going to happen? You entered the old covenant through physical birth. That's why the covenant sign was given soon after physical birth, right? Circumcision is a week after you're born as a male Israelite child. So you're born into the old covenant, and you receive the sign right after you are born. How do you get into the new covenant? Not by physical birth, but by spiritual rebirth. You're born again into the new covenant. Therefore, you receive the covenant sign right after your new birth, the baptism, which comes right after your spiritual rebirth. Th that argument to me, which we didn't make this argument up. This is from a lot of people for a long time. That argument to me, I, I can remember sitting in my dorm room at Tacoa Falls, uh, listening to my 2007 iPod. Those things are antiques now. 
I, I had my earbuds in. I couldn't sleep. I could never sleep. It was like two in the morning. I'm laying in my bed with the cinder block walls. look like a prison cell in my dorm room. I'm laying there. My roommate is asleep. I'm listening to John Piper explain this exact concept. And when he went, when he went through these texts or when he explained the argument, I'd never heard it before. It was just like the light bulb just came on and I was like, oh man. I, I was kind of going this the whole, like up until this point, I was back and forth on the fence. When he said that, it was all over. And, and, and I, 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 in a loving and gracious way, I have had friendly debates with Presbyterian friends of mine who I respect their opinions, who are very intelligent. And I, I have still never heard, I'm not saying this arrogantly because it's the argument, I've never heard a successful response to that particular argument before. Uh, and, and we could talk about what they often will say to try to get around it, but I, I don't think it is successful. Scott or Papa? I, I'm, just, I'm just reflecting on Jeremiah 31 and the fact that it's God that's going to change our hearts. And he promises the same thing in Ezekiel. This, the same uh, uh, heart change. He's going to take out our heart of flesh and, uh, and give us, a, I mean, take out our heart of stone, excuse me, and give us a heart of flesh, which is malleable and teachable, mm-hmm. and, 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 and a new heart, one that can accept him. And, 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 and of course, he, he goes on in, in, in 13 there, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming, becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, he's not saying that, oh, there's nothing anything wrong with the Old Testament. He's just saying, I've made a new covenant now. Yes. You broke the old covenant, and, and, and we're always the ones that break the covenants. God never breaks his covenant. We're the ones that break the covenant. Mm-hmm. So he made us a new covenant. And this way, he's going to make it stick because he's going to change our heart. Yes. And, and if we can flip back to Colossians before we lose our spot there. Let me just take one more minute on this. And, uh, Look again at verse 11, because the Presbyterian side will argue that circumcision uh, comes first and then baptism replaces it, and that, that, that's what this verse is teaching. Again, one more time, Colossians 2.11, in Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Now, what Presbyterians will say is, look, look how closely circumcision and baptism are placed in this passage. They're right next to each other. They seem to be happening right together. So clearly, the old covenant sign was given to infants of believing parents. Circumcision and their new covenant sign should be given to infants of believing parents. That's the argument. We just gave the reason why I don't think that works. Let me give you one more reason from this text. Look at verse 12. This little phrase is vital. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, do you see it? Look again. You were raised with him. Through what? Faith. Through faith. Faith. Okay, that is vital. The person being baptized, this is why we believe in immersion, not sprinkling. Clearly, baptism is meant to represent a burial. Crystal clear, buried with him in baptism. How, How would sprinkling look like a burial? It would not. Instead, you lay the person backwards down into the waters. It represents God's judgment. The, the, Jesus was baptized on the cross with the floodwaters of God's wrath. He drowned. Like, what, 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 was out, what was going on outside Noah's ark? That's what happened to Jesus. He drowned under God's wrath. And we are inside the ark of Christ, safe and sound, right, because of what Christ has done. So Jesus drowns. When Jesus was baptized, he says, I have a baptism to accomplish. And he says, this is troubling to me. So Jesus was baptized. His baptism, he did not come up alive. He went down under the floodwaters of God's wrath, and he drowned under God's wrath. That's what, we should have, that's what should happen to me and you. But instead, now, when we are baptized, there is no harm to us. Instead, we, we lay back in our b- baptism, representing our burial with Christ under God's judgment, and we come back to newness of life just like Jesus did, spiritually resurrected. And Paul says this happens through faith in the powerful working of God. How can an infant be baptized through faith? It cannot be the faith of the parent. That would make no sense here. It's talking about the person being baptized. They're buried with Christ, and they're raised through faith. 
Clearly, that's the one being baptized. So, baptism is for those who have faith. That is believer's baptism. Uh, Jerry? Hey, Jerry, can I just mention, can I ask you what your story is? Because yeah, did you grow up believing I'm this? the opposite way. Yeah. I tried to become a baby baptizer. <laughs> you wanted to be Presbyterian. Yeah, I wanted to be Presbyterian because that's the only church that would hire me. <laughs> I was at the interview and I thought, I, I really thought I was a good fit and said, they, you, you can't um, become... Um, our youth pastor, unless you believe in baby baptism. So I tried, and I went, and I studied, and I tried my best to become convinced, and I just couldn't become convinced. And so I turned down what I thought was a, a great opportunity at that church, and, uh, and we worked at a PCA church, but they didn't care. They didn't care whether <laughs> what I believed at, that, at the one in Myrtle Beach. And so... Uh, so I just haven't ever become convinced, and, and, but we grew up Mennonite, which was strongly Baptist. Because your brother, he believes in infant baptism, Mike, right? Yeah. And I know that at one well, point... Well, now I... Or yeah, I don't know. Okay. Well, yeah, he goes to a BCA church. But. Okay. Because I know at one point, I think, was he the one that told Jerry that he had read a good argument about infant baptism and you wanted to read it? But I love how your, your response was you wanted to read it because you didn't want to sin against your kids. Like, that's how it was. You, you wanted to know what the Bible says. Whatever it says, you're, you're going to follow it. Yeah, and I do think that that's why I'm glad we're talking about that because a lot of us around here are having kids, you know, and you want to baptize them if that's what the Bible really teaches. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think, you know, you guys have been very convincing that that isn't what we believe the Bible teaches. Can I take us to another? Turn with us. To, we're almost out of time. But First Peter, near the back of your New Testament, First Peter 3. Uh, I grant you this is a confusing passage in several ways, and I won't try to untangle this whole, this whole passage. But look at uh, verse 20. It's talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. But then verse 20 has this interesting passage comparing it with Noah's flood. 1 Peter 3.20, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience <clears throat> waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, so corresponds to Noah in the flood, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, Church of Christ, like verses like this, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Look carefully, verse 21, one more time. Baptism, which corresponds to the whole Noah flood, they're saved through water, just as we are saved through the waters of baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now listen, as soon as Peter pens those words, I know he's thinking how that will be heard by everyone. What are you saying? Get it, is it magic water? You, you get saved by the waters of baptism? And as soon as he says it, he clarifies, not the removal of dirt from the body. The physical act does not actually do anything. He, he, don't, don't think it's a removal of dirt from the body. A little footnote here. How much dirt gets removed from your body in sprinkling? Not a lot, right? This is clearly immersion. Removal of dirt from the body. This is immersion that's being pictured. But he says, listen, it's not the, it's not, there's a magic act here of baptism that saves you. No, no, no. It's not the physical act of removal of dirt from the body. It's what the act represents. Look at verse 22. No, no, verse, middle of verse 21. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is a, the person being baptized is appealing to God for a good conscience. They're pleading with God for salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is what baptism is picturing, burial and resurrection with Christ. So here, here's the point. A person being baptized in that act is appealing to God for a good conscience, something that an infant cannot do. 
This cannot be referring to infants. This is referring to a person who's a newly converted person who is appealing to God for a new conscience. They're, they're, they're stretching out to God for His salvation through the resurrection of Jesus, and they're showing it publicly through the act of their body being washed in the water. And that's what the new covenant promises, too. Yeah, the, the complete washing. That's right. That's right. That's great. Scott, will you pray for us? Sure. Heavenly Father, we're thankful uh, for this time. I'm thankful to open up your word today and read a lot of passages from your word. And um, thank you for, for baptism. Uh, what a powerful picture it is. Uh, I do pray for uh, those of us who have already been baptized when we watch baptisms at our church, Lord willing, in the future. I pray that we would watch uh, uh, and, and be joyful as we watch them, uh, that we'll wash ourselves afresh in the good news of being joined to Jesus. Father, help us not to waste those times when we watch baptisms. And for those who are going to be baptized, Lord willing, in the future, that they would be joyful, uh, as Mark talked about his baptism, that there would be joy there as they are publicly sort of professing their, their union uh, with the Lord Jesus. I do pray that we would uh, hold to this doctrine with uh, humility uh, about baptism, our view, uh, that you'd guard us from spiritual pride on this. Uh, so thankful for uh, the Presbyterian brothers and sisters that I got to grow up with, so thankful for them, even though we do disagree with them on this point. Uh, thankful for their influence in my life. And we do pray for the service upcoming uh, as we get to install our first deacons. I do pray that would be a joyful time as for Ian and Zach, celebrating them. We're so thankful for them, and uh, pray for Mark as he teaches from the, your word. Uh, help us to be attentive to your, to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.